turn back to uh, Judges, chapter 6 and 7. That's what we're going to be looking at together tonight. But I'll pray for us as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that tonight uh, you might feed us with this spiritual food of your word. Uh, remind us that we don't live on bread alone, but that what we really need for life is to listen to your word and to live by it. And so we pray we'll do that tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great joys, I think, of being a Christian, uh, and certainly a great joy of having the privilege of doing my job, is seeing the way God works in people to change them. Uh, God actually has done a miracle in every person here. Uh, he has worked by His Spirit, through His Word, to take you from darkness into light. Uh, and that is a miracle. God has worked to save you. He has, has brought you to the knowledge of His Son so that you can find salvation in him but what's even as incredible as that is that he then works in us and I think this is the great joy in when we look at one another's lives and see the way God works in every one of us to help us put off sin and put on godliness and so for me as I look out and I see people the, the most amazing thing is when you see people go from being selfish to being generous go from using their their mouths to tear people down, to using their words to, to build people up. That is an amazing work of God. And what's even as amazing as that is the way I see people who God uses and sort of develops their gifts in them to do amazing things for Him. Uh, one of the great privileges of being here for as long as I've been here is uh, there are people who I remember meeting, you know, 15 years ago, and the thought that they would ever talk to anyone about Jesus was so far from their mind that, that, you know, it was incomprehensible. And yet I look now and they're teaching kids in kids' church or they're leading on kids' holiday club or they're sharing their faith with their non-Christian family and friends. That is a miracle of God, the way God works in us to change us and make that happen. And that is one of the reasons I love this story of Gideon because uh, it's a story of God taking this weak, reluctant man... Uh, and he is weak and reluctant like many of us often are, he gives him faith, he strengthens his faith, and then he shapes him to do incredible things. So turn your Bibles open to Judges chapter 6. We read chapter 7 because uh, I wanted you to read the exciting battle sort of scene. Uh, but we're actually going to look at the whole story of Gideon from chapter 6 and chapter 7, sort of like story time with Phil tonight. It's just such a great story. I'm going to learn lots of lessons as we go through. But you'll just want to sort of spot where we are in the chapters, have it open in front of you. So where are we? We remember last week, uh, Barak and Deborah led them to this great victory. Well, actually, God led them through Barak and Deborah to this great victory. And God has given them 40 years of rest. God has given them 40 years of blessing. Uh, but as has happened every other time, when the going is good for Israel, what do they do? Do they give God the glory and say, thanks be to God for these 40 years of rest? What do they do? They say, oh, forget God, let's go worship other gods. And they turn to evil, it tells us. And the same thing happens here. And that's actually one of the great lessons of Judges. I haven't drawn it out in the weeks so far. But it's actually the lesson from every chapter of the book of Judges. And that is, it is often in the good times that we forget God. The good times, the times when you're experiencing so-called blessings are the most dangerous times for you as a Christian. And we need to hear that as people living in comfortable middle-class Sydney. You see, in the tough times, people know they need God. But when things are all easy and comfortable, people say, why do I need God? I'll forget Him. I'm all right on my own. 
But anyway, come back to the story. Eventually, God has enough of their idolatry and evil, and He sends judgment upon them, just like He has several other times already in this book of Judges. And this time, it's the Midianites. Now, the Midianites are a bit different to everyone else we've met. The, usually, what's happened is God has had other nations who they let live among them sort of rise up and cause them trouble. The Midianites were nomads. They were, if you've ever seen Lawrence of Arabia, some of you are going, I've never heard of it, but you know what I'm, anyway, an old movie. Anyway, but they're like the, the desert nomads. They ride around on camels. They don't have crops they grow themselves. They just find weak other people to go and attack. And so the Midianites found Israel was a soft target. So every year for seven years, they'd come in out of the desert on their camels, as, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And, and camels are pretty scary animals. I don't know about you, but I find camels scary. You know, but the, the Israelites, I find horses, I find every animal quite scary. Anyway, but other than our very small dog. But, um, but you see, they, as they come in, this is, these are like, this is incredibly threatening. And every year, Israel would grow their crops, fatten their, their cattle and their, their lambs and that. And then just when they're about to have food to eat, the Midianites would just come in and take everything. So look at uh, chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. It says, For the Midianites came with their cattle and their tents like a great swarm of locusts. They and their camels were without number, and they entered the land to waste it. So Israel became poverty-stricken because of Midian. So they're in a terrible position. And if you've ever seen a swarm of locusts, you know, we've got the drought at the moment out in country New South Wales, where the land is just totally bare. Well, that's what it's like after the Midianites came in. And eventually, Israel cry out to the Lord. Now, you might think that's a positive thing. Uh, God doesn't seem to think so here. You see, see I think it's, it's not so much they go, oh, that's right, we remember Yahweh will cry out to them. See, what's happening? They've cried out to all the other idols and they go, well, what about that Yahweh that our father used to tell us about? Let's cry out to him. And you notice this time God doesn't send a saviour, not straight away anyway. He sends them a prophet. Now, you can read about this in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 6. And this prophet, we don't even know his name, but he tells them a pretty awful message. Basically, this prophet says, hey, you've called out to God. I've come from God to tell you it's all your fault. Everything that's happening to you is all your fault. He would not have, this is not how to win friends and influence people, this preacher. Uh, he, he says, God says to you, I saved you out of slavery in Egypt. I gave you this land. I just told you to trust me and believe in me and follow me. And what have you done? You've prostituted yourself to other gods. So he doesn't offer them any hope at all. It's sort of like God has finally given up on Israel. But of course, God hasn't done that. And so now the camera swings around to focus on this one man, Gideon. So look at verse 11. It says, The angel of the Lord came, and he sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine vat, in order to hide it from the Midianites. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, we've met the angel of the Lord before, haven't we? Remember a few weeks ago in the earlier chapters? Remember, we're not certain whether that's an angel, like Gabriel, you know, in the, in the New Testament, or it might actually be God himself in human form. That's what I think it is. We're not sure though. But Gideon doesn't know any of that. He just thinks it's some random guy sitting under his dad's oak tree, and then you don't quite know how to take Gideon because he's obviously got a reputation as a mighty warrior because, he, you know, the bloke says, you're known as a mighty warrior, but he's not off fighting the Midianites. He's hiding underground in a wine vat where he's got a little bit of wheat 
he's kept for his family from the Midianite hordes. And Gideon then actually has a go at God. You can read it later on, but he says, you tell me you're from God, well, where's this Lord now? You guys talk about, you know, God saving us out of Egypt and God doing this and God doing that. Well, where is this God you talk about now? Sadly, Gideon reminds me of too many Christians I've known over the years who act in unwise or ungodly ways and then they blame God for the consequences of their sin. You see, this prophet has already told you, Gideon, this is happening because of you. It's Israel's fault. Don't blame God. Don't say, where's God? This is the judgment of God. That's why this is happening. But God is incredibly gracious to Gideon, just like he is to us when we question him and when we doubt him. God doesn't judge Gideon. He doesn't rebuke Gideon. He just says, Gideon, I'm going to send you to save Israel from the Midianites. It's like saying, don't worry about why this is happening. Just listen to the solution. I'm going to work through you to save my people. And sort of like Moses at the burning bush, Gideon gives all sorts of excuses. He says, oh, but I'm just an insignificant son from an insignificant family in an insignificant tribe. The funny thing is, in a few verses' time, it tells us Gideon went with his 10 servants. I don't think he was too insignificant. He's giving excuses, much like we sometimes do, for why we couldn't possibly do what God wants us to do. And then when that doesn't work, he asks for a sign to prove that this person is from God. And you can read it later, but he gets a sign. The angel tells him, put your food over on a rock over there. And then while Gideon's watching, the angel sort of goes with his staff and fire comes out and the food burns up. And Gideon goes, hang on, turns and suddenly the angel disappears. He's not there anymore. And at that point, suddenly Gideon realizes, I'm in a lot of trouble because this was an angel or even God talking to me and Gideon is terrified that he's treated God like that but even now God is gracious with him in his weakness God speaks to him and says look at verse uh, 23 the Lord said to him it must have just been a voice out of the air because the angel's not there anymore he says peace to you don't be afraid for you will not die this is the first lesson I want us to take from this passage Uh, our God is awesome in the true sense of that word He is holy, He is righteous, and He will judge people who refuse to repent and who test Him and refuse to believe. But what you see in the way He treats Gideon is that same God is also gentle and slow to anger. He is incredibly patient with His children. He's abounding in grace and He's quick to show grace to His children as He deals with our doubts and He deals with our fears. But back to the story, so come with me. Because now God says, Gideon, now that I've dealt with your doubts, now that I've shown you I'm God, it's time for you to act. But it's really interesting, we expect him to say, so now Gideon, go and fight the Midianites. But he doesn't do that. He says, Gideon, your first job is to go home and smash the idols of Baal that are in your village. You see, what we discover here, this part of the story is in verses 25 to 32. You see, what comes out is that actually Gideon's family has an altar of Baal right in the middle of their town. And worse than that, it's Gideon's dad who is the chief priest for Baal. So you see, it's not like Gideon can say, oh yeah, Israel's turned its back on you, God, but I've been faithful. God is saying to Gideon, your family's the problem. You're at the very centre of this. And so God says, I want you to go to your town 
and I want you to smash your dad's altar to Baal and build a real altar for me on top of it. That's not going to win him any friends or influence people. Now, I think there's a really important little lesson here. Why does God get Gideon to smash the idols of Baal before he goes and deals with the problem of the Midianites? Well, it's because the real problem was their idolatry. You see, God, God can defeat their enemies, but God doesn't want a people who share him with other gods. The real problem was they were worshipping Baal. They kept turning their back on the Lord and worshipping idols. And I think here there's a little bit of, Gideon, you've got to get your own house in order before you go and change the world. Make sure that you are trusting me. Make sure that you are faithful to me before you worry about doing great things for me. Sadly, I think, for we modern Christians in this age of social media and Facebook and the like, I think too many modern Christians are really keen to see the implications of the gospel for the whole world, you know, with whatever the latest cause is that you can tick like on Facebook, and not keen enough to see the implications for the gospel where God wants us to see them, which is, are you being faithful? Are you being godly? Don't worry so much about the world out there, worry about you and your household. Are you putting off sin? Are you worshipping God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength? Are you sharing the gospel with the people God has put you with in your family and your friends? And for those who dare to be leaders and teachers of God's people, make sure you are faithful in your own life before you dare to teach others. God hates hypocrisy. Now again, Gideon is sort of half impressive, half not. He does it, he goes and smashes the altar, but he does it at night when no one can tell it's him that did it. But if he was hoping to get away with it, he's sadly mistaken because they work out it was him and they go to his dad, Joash, you remember is the priest of Baal, and they say, hand over your son, we're going to kill him. But Joash stands up to them and it's a great moment. Look at verse 31. But Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead Baal's case for him? And then a bit further on, if Baal is a god, let him plead his own case because someone tore down his altar. I love that last line. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, well, if Baal's real, let him kill my son. Let's wait and see what Baal does about it. And of course, what does Baal do about it? Nothing, because blocks of wood are not very good at doing things. And that's the thing with idols. And at that moment, everything changes. The crowds are convinced. Gideon becomes a hero. They even give him the name Jeroboam, which means Baal beater, the man who beat Baal. I just imagine them saying it with an Arnie accent, you know, Baal beater. But anyway, that's just me. And so now you sort of think, Gideon, you should be ready to go and fight. You've done that. Now go and fight against the Midianite armies. God's spirit comes upon him and men flock to him. Men from all the tribes around come and say, we will follow you into battle. Tell us what you want to do, Gideon. Everything is ready except Gideon. Gideon still doubts God. He knows what God wants him to do. He knows what God says he will do. He just doesn't believe God yet, despite everything. And so he sets a test for God, and you can read it later in verses 36 to 40. Look there now, though. Uh, It's the famous story of the fleece or the sheepskin. It's one of the strangest little stories in the Bible. Uh, I don't know where Gideon got this idea from, but he says, I'll tell you what I'll do, God. I will put out a sheepskin on the ground... And if in the morning it's wet, 
but the ground is dry, then I'll believe you. And so in the morning, he goes out and it's wet and the ground is dry. And then Gideon says, all right, you've done that. All right, let's do it the opposite. Next morning, I'll put out a sheepskin. If the skin is dry and the ground is wet, then I'll believe you, God. And God does it again. Now, some people take this as a lesson in how to seek God's guidance. I don't mean, well, some people actually do put a sheepskin out and so forth. But what I mean is they make deals with God. They say, God, if this happens, I'll know it's your will and I'll do it. Show me a sign, God, if you want me to do this. Can I implore you, please do not do that. Gideon is sinning here. He is not giving us an example of how to seek God's guidance. Jesus says, we read in our second reading before, do not put the Lord your God to the test. God has spoken in his word. Jesus tells us that. He says, live by God's word. God has clearly told Gideon what to do. And Gideon is doubting God and testing him. He even knows it. Look at verse 39. As he does the second test, he says, please don't be angry with me, God. He knows it's wrong, but he's doing it anyway. So this is not an example to follow. Do not make this the lesson you learn from Gideon's story. Because what it actually is, is it's another wonderful example of how gracious God is with his weak and doubting children. God just patiently deals with Gideon's doubts and Gideon's concerns. He builds up his faith. He even responds to his ungodly tests. That's how gracious God is. He is building up his faith until he's ready, which I think is comforting, isn't it? God does not write us off when we waver. He doesn't write us off when we trust him, but do it at nighttime rather than in the daylight, if you know what I mean. Sometimes God even indulges us and answers our fears when we put him to the test. But that doesn't mean God wants you to do that. God wants you to trust him. What it means is God is wonderful and God is gracious. It's not a lesson for us. Well, now at last, we come to the battle in chapter 7. So come with me to chapter 7 that we read before. So here are the Midianites. They're like locusts. There's so many, you can't even count them. Gideon has 32,000 men which sounds a lot, but he's actually nowhere near enough. The Midianites were were, were over 100,000 men, it seems. But you sort of think with 32,000 men, if God is with you, you might be able to win. But then God says something that must have made Gideon cry. Look at verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many people for me to hand the Midianites over to you, or else Israel might brag, I did it myself. It's a great verse, isn't it? God says, with 32,000 men, if you win you'll sing songs about Gideon and you'll sing songs about the brave 32,000 men. You'll think you did it. But I want you to know that I did it, that I gave you the victory. So what God says, ask your men if they're scared and if they are, then send them home. And it's like there's 22,000 honest men in Gideon's army because 22,000 men say, oh, I'm out of here. See you later. Sort of like when you ask for volunteers for the cleaning roster. You know, that's anyway... Uh, now he has just 10,000 left. God still isn't finished though. God says there's still too many. Let's divide them again. And he takes them to the water. This is one of the weirdest things, stories in the Bible, I think. He takes them to the water and God says, divide them on the basis of how they drink. So he says, if they get down on their knees, I'm not going to do it. If they get down on their knees and just sort of lick the water straight out of the, out of the stream, send them home. But if they cup the water in their hands and lap it like a dog, then keep them. 
Now, people come up with all sorts of theories. I've been reading these all week from people who come up with all sorts of theories for why God wanted these men and not the others. So people say, oh, well, God didn't want men who are willing to kneel because that shows they're not tough and they're not great warriors. It's nonsense, you know. Uh, the men who cupped the water showed that they were more alert, always keeping their eyes peeled <laughs> for the enemy. It, it, they are all missing the point. God didn't want the best 300. He just wanted a way of dividing them so there were only 300 left. That's the point of this story. He could have drawn lots. They could have had running races and picked the 300 slowest. He, he could have picked the left-handed ones. He, he could have done anything. It's just arbitrary. The point is, now, humanly speaking, God says, you're ready because you have no hope. That's the point. You're ready because there is no hope of victory. But there's still one more thing that happens. God knows that Gideon will be struggling to trust him now. If he was struggling with 32,000, how's he going with 300, do you think? And here we really see that wonderful patience and grace of God because God does not wait for Gideon to sin. God does not wait for Gideon to test him. God, by his grace, comforts him before he even asks to be comforted. And this is in verses 9 to 14 of chapter 7. Because God says to him, sneak down and just listen in to what the Midianites are saying. And he says, and if you're too scared, take your servant with you. And so he goes with his mate and he listens and he hears them talking about strange dreams about bread rolls rolling into tents. And he's going, what's this about? But they convince themselves that this dream, and in the ancient world, people put a lot of stock on dreams. They convince themselves that this was a dream telling them, we are going to lose our camp is going to get wiped out. And he even hears rumours, them share the rumours about this amazing warrior called Gideon, the son of Joash. You can imagine them sort of even saying, they even call him Baal beater, you know. And he realises that in their superstition and in their fear, God has already defeated them. They're just there for the taking. And so now Gideon at last is the man of faith who you're meant to be impressed by. Remember we read Hebrews 11 last week that had Barak in it? Well, Gideon is in that list of faithful men to follow the example of as well. You see, Gideon didn't start off the man of faith. But God, in His grace and by His Spirit, worked in Gideon to make him the man of faith we see now. And so Gideon goes back to his men. He's got this incredible plan. It's incredible because they're going to attack these 100,000 people without swords. Gideon... These men must have thought, Gideon's gone crazy, you know. But Gideon says, this is what we're going to attack them with, jars, lights, and trumpets. And he says, that's what we're going to do. So he says, come with me, surround the camp in the middle of the night, and then all at the same time, smash our jars, blow our trumpets, hold up your torches, and together they shout, a sword for Yahweh and a sword for Gideon. And they win the battle before it even starts. Because in the darkness and the chaos, the Midianites think there are Israelites everywhere. So they stab everyone they see and they're stabbing each other. And we're not, some of them flee. And at this point, the other 9,700 who drank the wrong way and the 22,000 who were too scared say, let us at them. And they come and they come and chase all the Midianites and kill them. And then another tribe, the Ephraimites say, hey, why'd you leave us out? And they join in and kill them as well. And it's an incredible victory. There's more to the story, but I'll let you read on into chapter 8. But, and this is the point, no one could be under any illusion that Israel won this victory for themselves. 
And as important as his faith was, even Gideon couldn't believe that he won this victory. Gideon didn't go around saying, my faith was so strong, we beat the Midianites. Gideon went around saying, God beat the Midianites, because only God could give us this victory. Just go back to verse 15, you see Gideon understands this. When he came back to launch the battle, Gideon didn't give some, you know, incredible speech about we'll fight to the very last man and we'll do incredible things. What did he say? With verse 15, he returned to Israel's camp and said, get up for the Lord has handed the Midianite camp over to you. Who won the battle? God did. So what do we learn from Gideon's story? Uh, There's three things, I put them on the end of your outline there, have a look with me. The first is, yes, we should learn the lesson of faith from Gideon. That's the first lesson. Trust God and his promises, like Gideon did. Gideon is another example to us of faith, of someone who trusts God and his promises and lives by them. And like Barak last week, why he's such a wonderful example to us is, because he shows you faith even in weakness, and even as you struggle to trust God, which is what we need to hear. But much more than that, Gideon's story is a reminder to us that it is God who saves, not us. And this is the lesson I really want you to take away from this passage. It's God who wins the victory, not you or me. And that's actually the essence of the gospel, isn't it? We do not save ourselves. Ephesians 2 tells us we are dead in our sins, but God makes us alive in Christ Jesus. You see, God sent His Son to die for us to save us. And just like Israel had nothing to boast about, we don't either. If you start telling people, oh, the reason I'm a Christian is because I'm better than someone else, you haven't understood the gospel, you're not a Christian. If you boast about your faith, you haven't understood faith. Faith is just saying, I accept what God has done for me. It's God who wins the victory. Look at these great verses on your outline from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I've lost my outline, so I'll go off by heart. It says, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Isn't that just the great, you know that verse well, don't you? How are you saved? By grace, the free gift of God. God has won the victory for you. How do you receive that gift? By faith, by trusting Him. And is this from yourselves? No, it is a gift of His, gift from God, so that no one can boast. Don't ever forget that. If you are ever tempted to boast, boast about Jesus. Boast in Christ, not in yourself. He's the one who's won the victory that matters. But more than that, as we now live for Jesus, as we seek to proclaim Christ to a world that needs salvation, Gideon's story is a reminder to us of how God works just as much through our weakness as He does through our strength. See, sometimes we can think, I'm not that impressive person, you know, I'm not the gifted person, I'm not an evangelist, I couldn't ever share the news of Jesus with someone, I'm not a Gideon, but actually, when you say that, you are a Gideon, that's exactly what he said. You see, God actually prefers to use the weak things of this world to shame the strong, and the unimpressive things of this world to shame the impressive, because that way, He gets the glory. And that's the way it should be. God's not interested in people who tell him how they are the greatest gift for God. He's interested in people who humbly and in their weakness are willing to share the news of Jesus with others. 
Just look at how the Apostle Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 4. Troy, can I have your outline? I can't do this one off by heart. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, I don't think the Apostle Paul was thinking of Gideon's smashed jars as he said this, but it certainly made me think of this passage. Look at what he says. He says, For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves because of Jesus. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And now, verse 7. Now we have this treasure in clay jars. See, clay jars were the equivalent of polystyrene cups of Paul's day. They were the sort of things you just punch a hole in and throw in the bin. They're, they're broken. They're not very impressive. But why does God share his message through us, clay jars? Look at what it says. So that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. See, I hope you see God uses you in your weakness and in your frailty to shine the light of his gospel into the world. So let's get on with it and let's shine that light wherever we go. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way you speak to us through the book of Judges and we thank you for the story of Gideon. We pray that like Gideon, we might trust in your promises and act on them. But more than that, Father, we thank you for this reminder that our faith is only ever a response to the victory you've won for us in Christ. Help us not to be people who boast. Instead, help us to be people who boast only in Jesus and what he's done for us. And use us in all our weakness and all our frailty to share that good news with every person we meet. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.